you are listening to the cycling podcast at the 2023 Tour de France. Today we're in Bourg-en-Bresse. Welcome to Bourg-en-Bresse, the home of the famous chicken, Poulet de Bresse. Perhaps appropriate because the Peloton played a game of chicken today, didn't they? And they lost out at the end of stage 18 of the Tour de France. We are sitting in the old town of Bourg-en-Bresse. My name is Lionel Burney. This is a cycling podcast and I'm joined again by Richard Abraham. Good Hi evening, Lionel. Richard. Good evening. What a day. What a day. What we thought was going to be a fairly uneventful, routine, fairly predictable win for Jasper Philipson uh, was not. It certainly wasn't. It certainly wasn't. Let's get straight into it with the tale of the attack. It's time for the tale of the attack. It was 184.9 kilometres from Moutier to Bourg-en-Bresse and the news this morning was that Wout van Aert of Jumbo Visma was a non-starter. It's been rumoured for a little while that he might go home if his wife, who is expecting a baby, was due to give birth. So he is no longer in the Tour de France, won't ride on to the Champs-Élysées on Sunday with Jonas Vingegaard, his teammate, uh, but going home to welcome the birth of a child. So pretty much the finest reason to leave the Tour de France I'd say I'd say and it's pretty much job done for Jumbo Visma as well maybe um, well that certainly made the decision pretty easy didn't it he's Jonas Vingegaard's not not really going to need Wout van Aert barring catastrophe no but it does mean that Wout van Aert wasn't here to contest the stage we had him on the long list of potential winners of what we thought would be a sprint finish and it very nearly was a real snoozy day and after yesterday on the Col de la Lose absolutely no complaints about that because the peloton pretty much shattered at this stage of the tour but they let a dangerous break a powerful break of three riders go clear Kasper Askreen of Sudal Quickstep a former Tour of Flanders winner of course a former hour record holder Victor Campanarts of Lotto Destiny and Jonas Abrahamson of Uno X all three of them real rulers and the peloton wasn't in any mood to let them gain more than a couple of minutes and in fact it hovered around a minute all day which made it this fascinating cat and mouse battle and really we gave them no chance of staying clear no chance at all but then there was a little intriguing twist at 67 k's to go when pascal inkhorn of lotto destiny so campanart's teammate attacked from the peloton now the bunch weren't too keen on letting him get away and as he said at the finish there was a little bit of argy-bargy the road was all uh, filled with riders and jasper philipson even got involved in trying to prevent inkhorn getting away this is what inkhorn said at the finish i think it's nice to show we still have good legs after 18 days and uh, tour but yeah, we were here to win the stage and not to become second. So that's, uh, I'm a bit disappointed after all the work and also all the work of Victor. And we'll see again uh, tomorrow. Victor and you were so close to win the stage. What happened in that few meters? Uh, one guy was faster. That's it? <laughs> Thank you very much. Pascal, uh, Australian TV, just, just a couple of men, I'll let you go. Um, I didn't say it, but I heard that you, you tried to attack first and, and Philipson, did he shut you down and then you went again? Yeah. Can you just tell me about that? I already attacked and uh, then one guy of FEG attacked and I wanted to go. They were blocking the road. 
I got around and then he followed me and tried, you know, to right next to me, but I was just going full gas. I think he was just a bit annoyed. Yeah. That's uh, normal after three weeks in the Grand Tour. Yeah. Hey, kudos to you guys. You absolutely laid it out there. You won the day, but you didn't win the stage. I know it's bittersweet, but you're still fighting so late in the tour. You must be proud of your efforts. Yeah, exactly. I think uh, with Caleb going home, we uh, yeah we didn't have a clear favourite for the stage, so we all had a shot and we went full gas for it. And unfortunately, we didn't win, but yeah, we were close. Anyway, he did get clear, the former Dutch champion, and once he got halfway between the peloton and the break, Victor Campenarts actually sat up and waited for him and dragged him back up to the front too making a quartet and they rode extremely well together from that point on but with 20k to go the gap was 49 seconds no chance of them staying away 15k to go 29 seconds absolutely no chance of them staying away Richard we drove that finale into the centre of Bourg-en-Bresse and it was technical it's twisty it went from a wide road to a very narrow road there were some some turns and suddenly it started to feel like if they could get to 5k to go still away they might make it. What did you think watching it? I, it was, well, we, we drove it and, and we, I think in hindsight, looking back at what we saw from the car, it, it suited the breakaway. It was a pretty still day, maybe with a slight tailwind, but there were little sections that dropped off into roundabouts, quite narrow navigation, as you said, Lionel. So that does favor well, four riders riding very well together versus a large peloton. Um, I think what, what I kind of began to realize um, as this this break was unfolding was that because so many sprinters haven't made it this far in the Tour de France those teams that would normally be sitting quite tight in the peloton actually had no reason not to send very strong riders into that breakaway so you look at the caliber of those riders former hour record holder uh, Victor Campenarts Flanders winner in Casper Askren they looked very good together they were they were riding very well and this was something Askren said at the finish um, in his in his winners press conference he was asked the question you know what were you saying to each other what were you talking about did you have a plan and he said no there was there was no talking we all knew what we had to do and that's quite rare for a breakaway in these situations where there's lots of maybe competing interests and um, maybe riders feeling better than another there was none of that they, they knew they had to get their job done and, and ride very well to the finish and that was you know that was what happened. It was. I mean, spoiler alert, Casper Askren won the stage, but it was not quite as straightforward as that, was it? Because Lotto Destiny had two riders in there. Inkhorn is in himself a very fast finisher. Campenarts led it out for him, but Askren just had the legs. He was the strongest it's, in that finale. It looked like Lotto had played such a blinder. The, the fact that Campenarts had gone back to bring Pascal Inkhorn up to that break. And then, I mean, part of the reason why the break stayed away was because Campenarts just did a monster turn for about a kilometre, leading to about 400 metres to go through the Flamme Rouge. Um, he's, he's such an unusual and distinctive rider to watch. So aerodynamic, so kind of um, bulky, and you can just almost feel the power coming from him when he's riding. And he was just towing that breakaway along. Einghorn was sat, sat right in the back, and we thought, well, this is perfect. He's just leading it out negating any attacks from Askren and, uh, and Abrahamson, no relation. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, but as it was, it was Askren that had the, the better sprint. He was sat second wheel once Campenarts peeled off with a few hundred metres to go. And, you know, to see Askren, he's, he's, almost, he's, he's quite different to Campenarts. He's tall, he's rangy, um, he's, you know, there's, there's not the sort of uh, 
the sort of profile of a typical classics rider necessarily. Um, but he, he was, for week, week three of the Tour de France, stage 18, his sprint was immaculate. It was, it was indeed. And under pressure too, because let's not forget, one of the key reasons that Sudal Quickstep and Lotto Destiny had such strong riders in that break is because their sprinters have both gone home. Fabio Jakobsen long ago, Caleb Ewan a little bit more recently. So the pressure really mounting on Sudal Quickstep because they haven't won a stage in the Tour de France. The last time they drew a blank in the Tour was 2012. And for all that they were saying that they were you know, going along with the process and trying every day, uh, the thought of them getting to the final stage in Paris without a sprinter and without a stage winner that must have been causing some consternation in the in the camp. It's, it's sort of a team that carries itself with a bit of a swagger normally. There's, and that comes from the confidence of winning early and, and winning a lot, which they do historically. And, and I was at the Quick Step bus this morning and it, it rocked up last. Um, and uh, so they were sort of in a bit of a hurry and not, they, you know, they, they, they didn't get quite get a space in the, the area left for the teams. You know, they sort of were just chucked up, well, shoved on the side of the road, really, wherever the police could find them a, a space. And, um, you know, they, they haven't really been the quick step of, that we've come to expect. They've seemed to be trying to force it in the breaks. It hasn't really been flowing for them. Um, and, well, we'll wait and see. I mean, it, it, we'll have to see what happens tomorrow. But you wouldn't put it past them getting another good performance now. It's often the way, isn't it? There's sort of confidence, confidence flows. I think one, one thing that's also worth mentioning, part of the reason why the break stayed away was, was how strong it was. But it was also due to what was going on in the bunch behind. Quickstep were actively, sorry, Sudal Quickstep, we should probably call them, but, you know, Quickstep, to, <laughs> to, it's kind of the identity of the team, isn't it? They were, they were actively trying to disrupt the chase. Um, Lotto weren't taking any, any role in that. It was really Trek uh, and, and Alperson and, and Astana that were, that were pulling. The thing with, that Alperson, the Koenig have done so well when Philipson's won, they've almost been anonymous until the last sort of kilometre to go where Jonas Rickert brings... Mathieu van der Poel and Jasper Philipsen up right to the front and that's where Philipsen goes from they did that again today but the fact is they'd left it too, too late um, and, and they you could see them do the perfect lead out but they just left too much of a gap yeah that disruption by Sudal Quickstep was actually pivotal on that run in especially just taking the sting out of the chase just before it got to the tricky roads perhaps they thought well the tricky roads will do the job for them much harder for the peloton to get through those turns and, and when it goes from wide to narrow and the pendulum swung just enough in favor of the the leading riders uh, per- played it perfectly we should just say Jasper Philipson did win the bunch sprint not that there was a gap between the break and the bunch to speak of then came Mads Pedersen Case Ball and Jordi Meus and so a Danish stage winner and a Danish yellow jersey because there's been no change overall today Jonas Vingegaard still well clear of Tadej Pogacar the third Danish stage win as well in this year's tour Mads Pedersen Jonas Vingegaard and now now Kasper I'm going to ask you Lionel I'm going to cover up my notes here in, in the number of riders from each nationality in the Tour de France, where do you think Denmark sits? Um, I'm gonna, you know, France and Belgium are, are first and second, as in number of French and Belgian riders at this year's Tour. But where are Denmark? Oh, they probably got five or six riders, seven riders? No, a little bit more. They're 11 riders. Really? They're actually sixth 
in the uh, in in the list. Wow. So France, Belgium, Netherlands, Spain, Australia, and then Denmark, which you wouldn't expect, but but really. You know, we're seeing what is a, a cycling nation turn into quite a cycling powerhouse in this Tour de France. And really wasn't expecting to be put on the spot there. Richard Abraham's <laughs> quiz corner is uh, <laughs> going to become a little feature of the podcast, I think. I'll, I'll, I'll just keep the score here. We should, uh, just, <laughs> we should just say, I mean, Kasper Askreen is an absolutely top-class rider. You know, we saw that when he won E3 the Tour of Flanders, but he's had a real torrid 18 months or so, hasn't he? Yeah. He crashed in the Tour de Suisse last year and then really battled his way through the opening eight stages of the Tour de France and didn't start stage nine. And it's been a long old haul back for him, especially when you consider he crashed in the Arenberg Forest at Paris-Roubaix back in April, missed a month of racing, and his first event back was actually a gravel event, a UCI gravel event in Denmark about a month after Paris-Roubaix. And then he rode the four days of Dunkirk. And it's been gradually, gradually. And when I spoke to Tom Steeles earlier on in the tour, he was saying how encouraged they were by the fact that he was getting off the front here and there. And he was picking himself up, you know, day by day. Well, we spoke to Tom Steeles earlier in the race about the pressure mounting on Sudal Quickstep because they are, as you say, Richard, a team that wins early in the past few Tour de France's they've won on the opening weekend this year the wait has been a lot longer losing uh, Fabio Jakobsen in that crash on the motor racing circuit well he lasted a few more days after that but he wasn't really sprinting from from that point on and Julian Alaphilippe has been kind of out of sorts but Tom Steele's made the point at the bus that it's been a team effort this because instead of feeling sorry for themselves They've really tried to be aggressive. They tried to play a part in the race every day. And finally, it paid off. Yeah, I think it was an exceptional breakaway. Huh? Very good riders in the front uh, at the moment. We knew when Casper went in the beginning of the race, 185 kilometers to go, we thought, OK, we have to gamble. And he didn't ride in the front. He didn't ride at the back. Uh, and then one, uh, one the other rider of, of Lotto bridged. That was the signal to go. And there was also the point in the course when it really started to get down. And then it's like a team time trial. And Kasper is very strong. Kampenaert is, is a specialist in this kind of work. Abrams and also Ekon. And they work well together. The biggest, the biggest, um, yeah, the biggest threat was still if they started to look at each other with four Ks to go. But then luckily also uh, Kampenaert just went full for Ekon, who is also fast. It was a good breakaway to be in. Uh, yeah, and I'm very happy. I'm very happy also for Kasper. After all the, the fight he had to do to come back, we saw him growing every day. The spring season was not perfect, but you saw him growing every day. So I'm very happy that he made it. And what does it mean? And what does it mean for the for the team after this rather difficult uh, Tour de France? Yeah, it was a difficult tour, I think. Eh? Uh, Julio is improving every day, but we lost we lost Fabio the second day in the big crash, and he didn't recover from it. And then we had to gamble. And I, I think also I must say, um, also Alaphilippe has, has, has a big part of it. He just kept on going into the breakaways. Also, Casper kept on going into the breakaways, and that kept uh, the spirit of the team high. And uh, we knew today and tomorrow was was a, was a possibility for us. Um, yeah, and Kasper took it by his both, both hands. It's those four specialists. I mean, cycling nowadays are such the level is so high. They can bridge for 50, 60 kilometers at such a high speed. And you, you saw behind they also went going full and they didn't they, they came close. But you still have to come to the wheel. That 10 seconds was enough. In the tour, it's it's also a lot about the character. Uh, you have to have the physics, of course, but you suffer for three weeks. And on that point, I must say, uh, Kasper is, uh, 
I don't know if every Danish is like this, but he's a very hard character and he never gives up, so uh, no, no, good. Shoot, shoot at the du peloton, cycling podcast, team car, the back of the pack, please. That's Seb Piquet, the voice of Radio Tour, to remind me to tell you that this episode of our tour coverage is sponsored by Argonaut Cycles, the finest riding carbon bikes from Bend in Oregon in the USA. Argonaut Cycles crafts custom road and gravel bikes for the discerning cyclist, looking for more than just another mass-produced, mass-marketed product. Basically, however you want your bike to perform, Argonaut can make it for you. They can design something uniquely around the way you ride, wherever you ride, and they can address your unique physiology. And the result is responsive, effortless performances that know you and your riding inside out. I'm really looking forward to having a go on an Argonaut bike just as soon as I get home from the tour. Now, leveraging their patented manufacturing process, Argonaut is able to control every parameter of ride quality. Outside Magazine just named the RM3 as one of the best road bikes for 2023. In order to maintain the highest level of quality and consistency, every element of an Argonaut frame is designed and manufactured in Bend, Oregon in the United States. But don't take my word for it. What about Matt Phillips of Bicycling Magazine who wrote, The Argonaut RM3 may very well be the finest riding carbon bike I've ever had the pleasure to toss a leg over. Go to ArgonautCycles.com and start building your dream bike today. Richard, at the start this morning in Moutier, we really were looking for other angles, weren't we? I think we've got a lot of material in the bag, should tomorrow be routine and uneventful. But one of the stories you wanted to kind of follow up on was just what kind of toll yesterday's Col de la Loge and the big, big mountains took on some of the, the bigger guys, the sprinters and the lead-out men. And there's a pseudo quick step angle to this too especially as they were empty handed going into this morning stage well Lantern Rouge if I'm not if I'm not mistaken at the end of the day was was Mikhail Morkov and and, uh, and I was looking through the through the the results of the Col de la Loise and people were coming in one after another one after another and it it just looked 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 like such a such a hard finish I, I was curious to see what was what was going on behind the front runners so I I went to go and see uh, Mikhail Morkov this, this morning to ask him about Grappetto life in this year's tour and, and what that's how that's different to what it's been in the past. Limit to to stay within the race, uh, but uh, luckily we came to the last climb with a with a good uh, time difference to the front. So I also managed to be able to take it quite easy. And of course, I'm sad I lost Fabio because uh, the whole year I'm dreaming about winning stages with him here in the tour. Uh, so it was indeed very sad to to lose him and me not having a sprinter is meaning that I cannot show the best side of myself. Um, but yeah, today I'm going to try to get in the sprint myself and, and see if I can grab a result. What do you see as a, the reason behind all these good performances from Danish Lab? It's hard to say because of course we had a very good uh, development program for many years, uh, but also from my age we had very good development program. And uh, yeah, when I was young we was not that many. I remember we did a tour just with three Danish riders and not close to win anything. Uh, now obviously we have a golden era, uh, not only Jonas but also a lot of guys who can win stages, uh, yeah, world championships and etc. So yeah, I don't really have an answer for it uh, but uh, yeah, indeed I feel very lucky to, to be a part of this cycling era of Denmark. Did you see the sport growing in your country? 
yes spectators and, and in, indeed but cycling was always very popular especially the Tour de France uh, yesterday was of course the, the peak with starting in Tour de France and Jonas winning the Tour and, and now again this year so yeah it's it's huge about how the Gruppetto is it's not working together as much why do you think that is what's changed about this year's Tour is it? yeah I don't know uh, it seems like guys is not so calm or so experienced uh, because I think like yesterday uh, we are we were riding really really hard the whole day uh, to keep a gap of just six minutes to the front uh, I don't think that was necessary uh, I think indeed we could have taken it a, a bit easier and then being more secure to have a, a big group turning on the flat part which is the more important for, for us so um, yeah uh, I, I see that it's, the sports start to be more and more individual, uh, like everybody just doing their own thing and, instead of trying to cooperate a little bit. And there's nobody there to call the shots and tell everyone that they've got time. No, and, and that's that's also a general thing in cycling. I would say, you know, like uh, in in the past, you had more riders who spoke up uh, in front of the race uh, in the Cropetto. Uh Now. But I think it's also development of of, of the of the young generation in, in general. You know, all the all the young kids they they know better than anybody else. So it's hard to teach them anything. So that was Mikkel Mulkov there at the start. Um, funnily enough, he was their designated sprinter today. It's not very often that that he gets the chance to sprint for himself. He's a handy sprinter actually, um, in his own right. He's won a stage of the Vuelta. I think is that right yeah um very accomplished track tra- rider as well exactly um and of course you know absolutely typical isn't it slog typical. all the way through the <laughs> cold lows get given the green light in the meeting but then it doesn't come down to a sprint and your team wins anyway yeah extraordinary but, you team know, game though as francois says a team sport practiced by individuals and, and another danish winner as well i think might you know he'll be very happy to see casper win um Interesting point, though, what, what he was saying about the sort of the zeitgeist of, of the modern peloton. And, and I, I was just watching French TV in the press room um, just before the, the press conference has started and, and Thibaut Pinot was being interviewed. And, you know, it's, it's a bit of a cliche, isn't it? And, and, and it's easy to be kind of cynical about this in some ways. But he said he, the tour was just much more fun back in the day. And um, he was saying there's, there's nobody in the, uh, the start village these days. Everything's so serious these days. Everything's so anxious. And it, it's interesting to hear that, how these sort of this perhaps a sense of a, like, a, a bit of a generational change going on here. Yeah, I, I mean, I must admit, I've been around long enough to have heard successive generations of riders say that it's not as fun as it used to be or the other one is there's no respect anymore I can remember you know when Mark Cavendish was bursting through people saying about young riders there's no respect in the peloton anymore and Mark Cavendish eventually became one of those riders saying there's no respect in the peloton anymore it's just how it goes it's a rite of passage Uh, it it means that by logical extension if you go back to about the 1950s it must have been just a I don't know some kind of cabaret on wheels which obviously the Tour de France was back then yeah well when you look (laughs) maybe the less said about this some of the stimulants that were <laughs> employed back in those days the better but uh, yeah there is there is very much that sort of back in my day kind of raging against the dying of the light isn't there really and 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 and, and it is often it, we're seeing more and more young riders are, are coming straight into the peloton and getting results and, and that wasn't the case in the past and no, so that is true um, i mean uh, just on michael morkoff michael Mercu. Uh, he's, uh, we believe his contract with Sudal Quickstep expires at the end of this year and well there might be a bit of a rumour that, that Astana are interested I mean I can 
now a couple of weeks have elapsed. Basically, Mark Renshaw asked Mitch Docker from Morkoff's phone number. Um, you would imagine if Mark Cavendish does carry on with Astana, they're going to want to put a few more resources, a few more um, experienced people, people who know Cavendish as well, behind him if he was going to come back solely to try and win that 35th Tour de France stage and you would think Morkoff would be the ideal figure and I know that when Jakobsen crashed and kind of went through a few days where he didn't want to sprint and he didn't want the team around him he just wanted to kind of uh, nurse his injuries Morkoff was in the position of well I'm here for the team sprinter and now suddenly I don't have a job to do and that leaves a rider of such experience kind of drifting in the team a bit it's, it's hard for someone like that when, when your, your ability to show yourself in a race like the Tour is so contingent on what another rider can do. And, and in, in Murku's case, he's, he has no sprinter to lead out, so he's not putting himself in the shop window or even just for, for his, own sort of, um, his own sense of uh, achievement and, and, and purpose here. He's not got anything to work for. And this, if this is going to be his last Tour... Uh, it's his last year with Sudal Quickstep then in, in much the same way that Cavendish might feel he's got unfinished business with this tour I, I think Mikkel Murku would, would feel the same um, there has to be that kind of unspoken understanding between riders in that role doesn't there that, that lead out role it's so intuitive so fast and we saw in the past that those two work so well together he's it, Murkow, Murku is one of the best in the business and yeah. you know I, I'm sure if they are looking at kind of doing a job interview for that that lead out role if, if Mark Cavendish is going to ride next year then he would be top of the list and well maybe he's got his eyes on the Lantern Rouge prize in Paris because he is nine minutes clear as Case Bolt uh, in last place so I mean it's not it's, really a thing these days is it but it's not I mean better it, to be last than second last perhaps although it's it used to be the case that, that some riders did kind of deliberately soft pedal, didn't they? To, it's definitely in the Giro. Well, Mary, Mary Van Sevenant's dad, Wim Van Sevenant, deliberately uh, tried to finish last man. I think he was Lantern Rouge three times in the Tour de France. Uh, and back in the day, there was a kind of semi-official prize presented by, uh, whether it was by a newspaper or somebody mm. put up a prize for Lantern Rouge. Sort of not, no- as, not as glamorous as the black jersey in the Giro, though, for last rider. I no, think. I did hear a story, I can't remember the riders, but of, of basically kind of track standing going on on a mountain climb in the Giro <laughs> one year because these yeah. two these two riders were just like locked in this battle to be the slowest on the on the finish it, it doesn't seem to have that kind of cult appeal that it used to maybe maybe not maybe not it what was better I would, in the old days what line, I would I say, <laughs> everything was better in the old days Richard and as an oldie I'm allowed to say that you're yeah. only 26 so you can't you can't say that yet uh, what I would say is that the you know one trend we're seeing in the tour in recent years is that the the last man is a lot further down on GC than ever used to be. I mean, it used to be the case it would be maybe three and a half hours, four hours was kind of pushing it for last man behind the yellow jersey. What's, what's Michael on now? is currently five and a half hours behind. So he's basically ridden another day and a bit. I mean, the stages are short, so that's m- more than the longest stage. So what will he be probably half an hour down on Saturday on the mountain stage yeah. more or less so yeah. that's going to be coming up to six hours which is a st- almost it, two stages it, really isn't it it's hard yeah, yeah it is hard anyway uh, we are going to talk to somebody else who had a hard day today in the next part
we are delighted to be partnered with MAP, the clothing company from Melbourne. They have designed our brilliant cycling podcast jersey and range of accessories, all available from map.cc. That's M-A-A-P dot C-C. We've been hearing from one of the founders, Jared Smith. And in this little clip, we're going to hear about how proud he is when Australian riders are doing well in the tour and how much of a boost it gives to him and his company, even though MAP, Melbourne-born as it is, is a global brand. G'day, this is Jared from MAP and I'm the co-founder and the co-CEO. Simon Clark's a local guy. He's gone through the grassroots here in Melbourne with one of the local clubs. I believe it was Caulfield Carnegie. So we're a big fan of his. And Caleb Buen, I've seen race a lot in Melbourne because he used to come through for the Bay Crit. So I'm a huge fan of Caleb Buen and to see him getting very close to winning a stage, coming third, and now he's coming second. So let's hope he can, um, you know, take the top of the podium there. But he, he's from New South Wales, I believe, but I have seen him race a lot around Melbourne. Ben O'Connor, WA boy, but, you know, a huge fan of his. So we all, I think just being an Australian in the tour, they don't have to be from our local suburb or city, but all Australians get behind the Australian guys out there racing. Go to map.cc to shop the entire range of map clothing for on and off the bike. We are in Bourg-en-Bresse, a town that I really like, actually, and not just because of the famous chicken, uh, although I do really like the famous chicken. A few colleagues have uh, pulled me up over the years for taking them for a very expensive chicken dinner, but I personally think the chicken is worth paying for here, and I'm looking forward to buying some chicken this evening. I've had three nights of basically non-French non, food, yeah. so I'm looking forward to having some some meat in a brown sauce, which is basically French cuisine. Classic France. I, I love stages like this on the tour. I I think if I, if the mountains is sort of the heart of the Tour de France, then this is sort of the soul, really. It's, you're not really sure where you are in France, but you know you're in France, and it's got that summer holiday, that July feel to it, and it's this beautiful town that I, I would, you would never come here unless something brought you here really it's not on a tourist trail it's not a big place at all but days like today where it's, it's even even more so when they finish in, in a surprise like they did this is i don't know it's just really kind of as much as the mountain stages in some ways this is what i get quite excited about for the tour well let's hear from our very good friend francois Tomazo with some french flavor now for some french flavor would be francois Tomazo. Well, guys, we nearly had another sprint finish in Bourg-en-Bresse because Bourg-en-Bresse has been in the past a yes a spotlight for uh, sprinters on the Tour de France Tour. Tour Ushoft in 2002, Tom Boonen in 2007 had won a Tour de France stage in Bourg-en-Bresse on a bunch sprint. Well, today, Kasper Asgreen you know, denied the sprinters and especially Jasper Philipsen the win they thought they could get and well there is a, a, a sort of tradition of sprinting in Bourg-en-Bresse because it's the actually the birthplace of Daniel Morelon. Daniel Morelon maybe doesn't you know say a lot to uh, our listeners but he was Olympic sprint champion for France in 1968 and 1972 and he also won he won seven world titles between 1966 and 1975 which made him at the time the most successful sprinter at individual world championships on track uh, before Co- Japan's 
Koichina Kano won 10 of those titles. Uh, so in spite of this predilection for sprint, well, as, as we saw, Bourg-en-Bresse uh, could not uh, crown another sprinter today. Well, Manu Kasper has win is fast, but yeah, not a real sprinter and not a real bunch sprint. Two other things about uh, Bourg-en-Bresse. First of all, uh, well, we... Uh, Quite a few uh, a few years ago, uh, at lunch, I remember with uh, Lionel and uh, our dear friend Richard Moore uh, in Bourg-en-Bresse, in, in, in front of the Royal Monastery of Brou, which is a masterpiece of the Renaissance and of flamboyant Gothic. And it's actually been voted that uh, monument, which is a, yes, a very elaborate uh, church uh, and monastery convent and. Uh, well, the, the, what's left of the convent now is the, uh, the what they call the Abbey Church. Um, it's actually been voted France's favorite monument in a TV uh, program in 2014. So quite uh, a nice place. So we were uh, eating, I remember, chicken with uh, Richard and Lionel in Bourg-en-Bresse. Well, it's, it's, it's worth famous for La Volaille de Bresse, the Poulet de Bresse. All the poultry from Brest is, is is really renowned worldwide. When one of the most famous gastronomists in France, called Bria Savarin, wrote a book in 1825 called The Physiology of Taste, and he ranked the Brest poultry as the first in the world, the yellow jersey of chickens, and he gave it the nickname of Queen of Poultry, Poultry of Kings. Well, now you know everything about Bresse poultry and uh, well guys I hope you have a nice little chicken piece of chicken tonight and sorry for sprinters it was not your day as I said earlier Richard this morning we were anticipating a pretty routine stage and a pretty routine sprint finish we probably thought Jasper Philipson going to become the first rider to win five stages in a tour since who? Quiz Corner oh first right 1-1 one, one. You, you don't know, do you? No. You don't know? Oh, I sprung Mar that on me. Marcel Kittel Marcel in 2017. Kittel. Yes. I really hope that's right. I really hope that's right. <laughs> Otherwise, egg on face. Egg on face. Uh, which came first? Yes. Egg on face or poulet de breast? Anyway. Borg on breast We were thinking, like, what are we going to put in the episode? We don't just want to talk for 35 minutes about a, a fifth Jasper Philipson stage win, as impressive as that would be. And, well, you've been looking through the start list, haven't you? Richard and wondering about riders who kind of span generations in the tour. Yeah, I can't remember how I got onto it, but I started wondering how long ago the rider in this year's tour had ridden a Tour de France. It actually turned out that Luis Leon Sanchez, the, the, the doyen of the of the peloton in many ways, had ridden the 2005 tour, um, but unfortunately he he quit. Um, Mark Cavendish was next in the list. I think his first tour in 2007. Um, and then he quit so the list of riders was going thing but uh, there were a couple of riders who'd ridden in 2009 it was Rui Kostya and Simon Geschke who well Simon didn't have the best of days today he he quit the race he abandoned um, with a, a little over two hours of racing left I think sort of 60 70 kilometers to go and had a really difficult day yesterday he had an awful most day. of the day just in front of the broom wagon and then apparently vomiting on his way back to the hotel well so he said stage. on social media yeah it just 
I think one of those days he was, he was saying that you, you can't really explain just a, 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 a huge sort of journée sans, as they say in French, like a, a day with nothing where you just you, all your form disappears. Yeah. Um, He's finished all 10 of his tours up to now. He was an audio diarist for us a few years ago during the lockdown tour, a very engaging character. And, well, it's been a, a difficult couple of days for Coffee List because they lost Alexis Renard and also Anthony Perez today so they've lost three riders in 24 hours basically but Geschke rode the tour back in 2009 a tour I remember very well did you were you at that tour Richard I was or not on that tour you, line no, were no. you still at school then or <laughs> yes I was learning my ABCs in <laughs> <laughs> nursery school but this is a real snapshot of what the tour was like how many years ago was that I'm not even sure I can this, do the does map. this count as quiz corner it's 14 <laughs> This is Simon Geschke of Coffee Dish talking about his first tour in 2009. Yeah, it's a really long time ago. I was a neo-professional actually. So I was probably the, the rider in the tour that year with the lowest salary <laughs> because I was also riding for a pro-continental team with Skechimano. And yeah, it's a, it's a really long time ago. I mean, uh, I remember it was Lance Armstrong's comeback year. And one of my sports directors now had his last Tour de France there, so yeah, it was definitely, for me, a huge step forward, of course, because the year before I was just an amateur rider, and then uh, in my first year with the pros, I uh, immediately did the Tour de France. I think it was also my first, I know it was not my first World Tour race, but first World Tour stage race, I didn't do Paris or anything. And yeah, and then there I was in the tour. Yeah, it was uh, pretty crazy, and I, I was. I'm still proud that I finished it. Of course, I was not really on the level to, yeah, to do anything like a stage result or, uh, yeah, I, I wasn't even in any breakaways. I, I was just finishing, but it was, yeah, well, I was pretty proud. What do you, what do you remember from that race in particular? Is there anything that stands out? Yeah, especially. Uh, Comparing it to nowadays cycling, it was uh, we didn't have a chef. There was no. Uh, I, I don't think any team had a chef that year. I don't. I don't know. But uh, uh, it was the first time I was having a team bus because uh, till the tour we were only doing the races with the camper. So yeah, it was a. Uh, yeah, everything changed in the last 14 years, definitely, and. Uh, we didn't do any altitude camps or but yeah uh, when i look back now it was i had the feeling it was a bit more yeah it was different racing also not everyday full gas now uh, i have the feeling we we uh, go really every stage like a ronde race but yeah I had a little look on, on Getty and found a few pictures from that tour. I don't know if you remember. Without the beard, I guess. Yeah, without the beard. Uh, stage in the Pyrenees, I think. Yeah, 194. That was my, it's still on my fridge. The start oh, number. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and for then, sure, uh, I was dropped there. <laughs> I think on stage three, it said you were in the breakaway. Yes, we. I, I was once in the front, but that day uh, the bunch split in crosswinds. And I was there and actually... Probably that was the most memorable uh, situation in that year's tour. So, uh, yeah, so we had the whole time headwind or tailwind, I don't remember. And then there was a 90 degree corner to the to the right. So, yeah, 
most of the teams were surprised. That was strange. But then, of course, we had crosswinds and uh, we had Kuhn court and the break that day. So he said, oh, yeah, it's all open here. Be prepared for, for crosswinds. And we were there with, uh, with five guys. Um, and I was the last one that uh, was before the split. And actually, Alberto Contador was trying to get in the wheel of fr in front of me, but it was my teammate. So uh, I didn't leave a gap because I, I was just trying to stay in the wheel and boom. He was dropped that day and Armstrong was in the front. So that was a big thing. And I was the one that put him in the wind that day. <laughs> I felt a bit sorry, but uh, yeah, that was racing. But yeah, for me, that was also that year was uh, the biggest result. And I remember I looked back and uh, I saw a huge gap behind me. So uh, yeah, that was uh, quite fun and was uh, actually the best stage I did <laughs> result-wise. I think I was 23rd out of 20, 25 riders <laughs> finishing uh, the day in front and Mark Cavendish won there. How do you think it would be to ride your debut Tour de France now in 2023 compared to 2009? It's really hard to say. I mean, then I was 23 years old and yeah, but the training then, I think I would be on a much better level now with 23. Like, you, you see it now, 23, the guys like Pogacar, they win the Tour already, even even at a younger age. Uh, and yeah, training now is much more scientific um, like it was back then, because yeah, the first power meter I got was exactly in that year, in the beginning of the year. Okay, I see the watts now. Um, but before I was just riding, I did sometimes. Yeah, well, I never, I never trained really uh, structured. And uh, if I would do it now, I think uh, I would be on a better level and uh, with a better preparation. So I think it would be uh, a bit easier to, to be on the, on the world level already. But uh, I think now, yeah, I probably wouldn't do it as a Neo. Uh, now we have uh, Axel Zengler in the team, who also rides his first Grand Tour ever in Institute of France. But he was already racing World Tour races last year, so he's on a much better level than I was uh, that year. But yeah, that would be the biggest difference, I think. And uh, yeah, but I have the feeling the, the racing got definitely harder from, uh, from that year to now. The cycling podcast at the 2023 Tour de France is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Thank you very much to Science in Sport, our long-term supporters, of course. If you're taking on a challenge as significant as the Tour de France, or for us mere mortals, uh, long sportive, you need more than just mineral water in your bottles. And riders need to replace whatever the body loses during the hours of intense exercise and the uniquely formulated SIS Go Energy plus electrolyte gels help rehydrate riders, meaning that you can go harder, longer and further. Science and Sport products are developed for elite athletes with feedback from elite athletes, but they are available to all. Fueled by science, go to scienceinsport.com to shop the whole range. Well, we can see Paris now, can't we, more or less. We'll look forward to tomorrow's stage, which... Well, Matt White said this morning he didn't think would end in a sprint because that third category climb at the finish as they run into Polini will be too hard for the sprinters. But having missed out today, who knows? I mean, Jaco Alula look like they're going to be leaving it until the Champs-Élysées if they want to get a win for Dylan Groenewegen, who wasn't really featuring in the sprint finish. 
even though the win had more or less gone. I mean, he wouldn't have known that the win had more or less gone. Everyone was sprinting for the win, weren't they? But uh, I was talking to Matt White also about just how, uh, as a sports director, he would have coped with having a rider suddenly fall out of contention for the GC in the way that today Pogacar has done over the last couple of days. And he made a few interesting observations. I was sort of clumsily trying to compare it to when Simon Yates was looking set fair to win the Giro and then had that terrible day and uh, lost the pink jersey, having dominated up to that point. And, well, Matt White didn't really see the comparison because... Tadej Pogacar is one of the most talented, if not the most talented, all-round bike riders in the world. And he's had a couple of bad days, is the, is the way that he saw it. But then, as we were wrapping up, he said, this has been the most aggressive Tour de France he's ever seen. And I, I'm pretty much certain that that's the case. I can't think of a more aggressive race where it's been so full-on so often. And then he said the course has been set up that way. It's been set up to make it hard. But then at the end of the day, who makes the racing hard, he said? The riders or Netflix? Which I thought was quite interesting. Anyway. I haven't actually noticed Netflix here. Oh, they're everywhere. Maybe they're, they're sort everywhere. of hiding in plain sight. Well, no, sight. they wear team-branded clothing, you see. Is that so they're right? embedded with the team. So the Ineos Netflix guys wear Ineos T-shirts and the Yumbo Netflix guys wear Yumbo T-shirts. In that case, I have very much noticed no- they're always Netflix. They're always pushing you out of the way of the team buses. <laughs> That's those guys. Mm. Um, a few other bits of, that we didn't mention yesterday. Well, we didn't know that it was Thomas Vauclair, former yellow jersey in the Tour, that was on the motorbike that was in the way yes. on the Col de la Lose. <laughs> he was apparently suspended from the Tour today. I mean, not his fault. He wasn't driving the motorbike, but he was on the back of it for French TV. And I didn't mention, you know, we talk about the crowds and kind of crowd control, and it's been a bit of a theme of this Tour, but it did take me back to Courchevel in 2000 when I was there. Marco Pantani won the stage, and if you watch the stage finish on YouTube, you'll see a guy in a Kelme jersey and shorts on a bike riding after Pantani, and that is not a rider from the Kelme team. It's somebody who got over the barriers on their own bike and was riding in the finish straight. And I think there was somebody further down the mountain on a festine, in a Festina jersey on a bike. A couple of kind of random guys got on the course. So, I mean, we haven't seen that yet in this tour. There's still time. I dread to think what would happen if somebody tried to pull that off now. There, I mean, there is quite a security presence on, on this year's tour, isn't there? And there are a lot of people who are very intent on making sure that everybody stays in their correct place and uh, I, I don't think it would take long for the security team at this year's tour to uh, quickly remove somebody from no, well, the race. Our colleague, Australian journalist Sophie Smith, had her accreditation quite aggressively pulled from around her neck by a gendarme yesterday. I mean, the account I heard of this from Sophie and from others who were there was a bit of an overreach. But uh, there is a nervousness and there is an edge around, especially when the crowds are huge. Well, when the tour started, it was when France was was the riots and and, and the mm. response um, to to the killing of that that, that boy in in Paris was was really kicking off, and and I think there was a, a genuine concern that when the when the tour came back to French soil, um, that something was going to happen. The, the two were going to intersect. I haven't seen any evidence of that in this last week. It feels like things in France have died down to some mm. extent, but. I can remember being on the tour um, when there were the, the bombings in Nice, I think mm. 2016, perhaps, if, if, if memory serves me right. And the security presence almost overnight was instantly recognisable. And um, I think ever since then, really, it, it, it's, it's been a feature of the tour, hasn't it? That yeah. 
a listener actually got in touch and said that the reason for the crowds being so big on the mountain was because so many people are riding up on e-bikes. And that might be another little thing, you know, in a number of different factors that are contributing to the crowds being big, that could be another thing. It makes it a lot more accessible for more people. And especially on the Col de la Loge, which is, of course, the bike path. And we were having dinner last night with a, a very good friend of mine and a friend of the podcast, Charlotte Attio, who's published loads of excellent cycling books and now lives in uh, in the Merribell Valley. They were talking about how this cycle path is being extended across multiple uh, parts of the valley and they want to bring the Tour de France back here. But of course, uh, bringing the Tour de France, bringing the crowds, everybody wants to get as close as possible to the action. And I think it's not just anecdotally that the crowds feel big. They do feel big. It's kind of it's kind of weird in a way because when when you spend time up there on the mountain, it's almost like you're sort of getting hyped up to to go out to a party. You know that the way that the whole tour is set up with the caravan coming and building this anticipation and the long wait, the helicopters buzzing in the distance, and like it, it does kind of drive people into this sort of frenzy. And and there's that thing of of crowd behaviour, isn't there? Like I mean, you and I, Lionel, are both football fans and. We've probably experienced that that peculiar nature of crowd behaviour, where things happen that would only happen in a crowd. People behave in, in ways that they would never do if they were on on their own or, or in in small groups. And and that's definitely, to me, that's that's what looks like is happening on those because the, the crowds are huge, aren't they? Like all the way up that mountain, massive crowds, and and it's not easy to get to at the top there, is it? But. Um, I mean, as Seb PK said yesterday, that perhaps the Netflix effect that's that's actually raising awareness here, and and actually anecdotally, was Charlotte um, and, and Robert last night mentioned friends of theirs that that had had suddenly started asking about cycling because they'd seen it on Netflix, and you have to wonder how much that's that's actually bringing people here, and uh, that's great. I mean, that's fantastic for the sport, and that's surely what ASO want, but perhaps the kind of unintended consequence here that they maybe no one's really quite foreseen is it's just going to be Chaotic. so many more people in these, yeah. these small places. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, listen, the other big story has been the response to Jonas Vingegaard and his dominance in the time trial predominantly because I think we got a bit more context yesterday with Tadej Pogacar dropping away. Maybe, you know, he wasn't feeling his absolute best in the time trial. Uh, but we talked last night a little bit about the how the sort of narrative is set by the media in a certain way. L'Equipe's front page, which had its echoes of the front page which greeted Lance Armstrong's victory in 1999 on Sestriere and really was kind of an accusation as much as anything. And, and I think then. as well, meant, uh, something I noticed today, was it Extraterrestre? Was that a, a title they used for Indurain? Mm. Um, you know, Extraterrestrial, which again sort of echoes through the generations yeah. of... Uh, Indeed. Well, I mean, <laughs> it's quite heartening in a way because uh, the feedback from last night's episode is that we were, uh, we were, uh, we were wrong to kind of uh, cast aspersions on Jonas Vingegaard, which I don't think we did. But we were also um, wrong to go too soft, uh, which I also don't think we did. I think it's a real tricky one, this. And I, I, I take the point that, you know, as an old guy who's been there through successive doping scandals, you know, it isn't just a hangover of the past that, that the um, that the kind of the amber light goes on. We we have to have our eyes open uh, to what we're watching, and I think L'Equipe, as literally the newspaper which is you know holds hands with the Tour de France, um, when they have a headline like that, it does 
make you think what is the prevailing kind of impression of Vingegaard's performance and um, well we know that they have really tried to mimic Team Sky Team Ineos in times, terms of the marginal gains but of course when you say that then that opens the door to well are they also mimicking in terms of uh, pushing into the grey areas when it comes to the anti-doping regulations now they say no of course but Alexander Roos who is the chief cycling correspondent of L'Equipe we featured him in a kilometre zero a few days ago. He's a very thoughtful guy, a brilliant writer. And, well, I wanted to ask him what he thought of Vingegaard's performance, but also uh, provide a bit of context for this headline, which, as I say, has echoes of that Lance Armstrong era. Well, Alex, I wanted to ask you a question about Lekeep's coverage of Jonas Vingegaard a couple mm. of days ago, because the headline was raised my eyebrows a bit because of echoes with the headline that greeted Lance Armstrong's stage win in 1999, uh, Dune Ultra Planet. And I, I know you don't write the headlines, but could you just explain the kind of uh, temperature of your coverage of Jonas Vingegaard over the last couple of days? Um, uh, for, for sure, we had to, to deal with, uh, with the doubts uh, around the performance uh, on the TT uh, and the huge gap with uh, Pogacar. And uh, so we try to, in in our pieces, we try to uh, to f- find explanations uh, in the preparation of the TT, also maybe in uh, Pogacar's shape uh, to explain the the gap. And um, for sure, the headline was uh, about uh, um, how to say. Uh, speak about the performance from another planet because he's uh, he's super strong, he's stronger than anyone, and also uh, to put the, the doubts and the the suspicion in in the mix. So clearly, there was a double message. Do you have any doubts yourself? I don't know whether there's much information to go on, really. Uh, I think uh, for me as a journalist, doubts are something uh, quite personal. So. Um, uh, I would say that I have doubts in cycling uh, every day, uh, not only uh, about uh, Jonas, uh, uh, but that's not, uh, for me, it's not uh, enough to write. It's just a feeling, it's just an impression. For sure, we are we're following the race, we feel things, so sometimes we are very excited, sometimes we're not. But uh, for me, uh, as I was saying, it's not enough to then write about it, because it's just... Uh, it's just my personal take on it. It's just it's not a journalistic, I don't know if you say that, but uh, a thing. So it's always complicated to, to deal with those uh, two faces, actually. Did yesterday's stage with Pogacar uh, falling back so dramatically, did that change your impression? Or was the time trial performance still uh, something that needs to be explained? Uh, I would say uh, yeah, two things. Um, I think in cycling, because of the past, for sure, when there's a, an exceptional uh, performance, there's always there, there will be always questions. Uh, then I, I must say that yesterday I tried to read uh, and uh, learn things about how Vingegaard uh, prepared the TT, which was a six-month uh, work, uh, as I understood. And then also when Pogacar was dropped very, um, very early in Col de la Luz, I also try, uh, began to understand that maybe it wasn't that well the day before during the TT. So yesterday I had some, I had, I had the feelings you have some elements 
piling up to, to, to explain the gap. So, yeah. That's the thing about the tour, isn't it? We, we take it as we find it, I guess. Yeah, for sure. If you if you remember two weeks ago, we were saying it it was a legend duel, uh, the a duo that it, it would be um, an addition for history because uh, there will uh, there will be like uh, three seconds between the two at the finish that exploded. Uh, we thought that the the motorbike incident would have a huge impact on the race. That's forgotten. So we have to roll with the race every day, and and for sure the truth of of one day is not the, the one of the other day. And lastly, uh, have you had contact with Jumbo Visma, the team? Do they ever interact with with you or with uh, your colleagues? Yeah, with my colleagues, we uh, we spoke yesterday with uh, Matthew Aber, which is a uh, who is the director of performance in Jumbo uh, we try to speak with Jonas we asked for an interview for the end of the tour for sure so yeah we, sp- we speak with them I maybe should be a little bit careful here because he didn't say this on the record but I gather that Alex wasn't a big fan of that headline and wasn't too pleased that the staff in the office went with that um, it's a conundrum for a writer uh, Richard you know you when you've written magazine features or I've written for newspapers, you're not in control of the headline. You're not in control of the kind of, I don't want to say top spin that the office staff put on things, but basically the top spin that the office staff put on things. Absolutely. And, and when the, the job of a, of a journalist is to, to report fairly and accurately and, and, and treat the subject appropriately, but often the job of, of the people writing the headlines is to, to sell magazines. Or, or newspapers or to get clicks and there's sometimes a, a conflict, conflict. yeah absolutely and that's that's inherent in web publishing and in print media and it, and it always has been yeah i mean alex roos is a very nuanced writer he, you know i i described it in the kilometer zero as you know he's trying to express the the poetry of the tour in prose and so he's not a kind of crash bang wallet type journalist and uh well i gather that uh, his editor was I basically said he'd gone a bit soft. But as Alex himself said there, soft on what basis? I mean, there, there is no kind of... It's not like there's a big cloud hanging over the Jumbo Visma bus or there's some kind of connection that we're all rooting around trying to see whether there's, there's a story to uncover here. You know, cycling does feel quite different to the way it felt even five, six years ago. And as I said last night, maybe that is, uh, you know, that's going to come back and bite me, that, that kind of attitude. But it doesn't feel like there's uh, sort of two worlds operating at the same time. Yeah, and right now, like you said, Lionel, the mood around the bus. I mean, you've covered way more tours than me, but I was certainly there in those sort of Team Sky years where there was a a general... um, It was almost like the default was to be critical and to... um, to question everything that 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 they were that, that we were seeing um there was just this tone that was sort of uh, pervading the the approach to, to what we witnessed in those years and, and it doesn't feel the same um it doesn't feel like there's question after question being put vinegar's way about the performances that we're seeing um and that's well it is what it is i suppose it is indeed and uh, well we should leave it there richard because the pulo de press is calling will you have the bourgogne breast chicken this evening i've been um metaphorically sitting at the back of the pack um saving my yeah. stomach we've for, had a very for, light for day when it comes to 
food, haven't we? I've, I've basically had a, a quiche, a croissant, and a magnum bar, uh, magnum ice cream. That's yeah. it. I'm, I'm on my last legs. I'm, I'm kind of in the gruppetto, hoping for the finish line to come into view. So uh, we should leave it there. Thank, Thank you, you very much, Richard. Cheers. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freeb, and Lionel Burney. Thank you.